You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me this week are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have more than 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five most popular stories on our websites and discuss the implications they have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. We're also live every week on YouTube, so make sure to subscribe to us at IEN Magazine to get a a notification whenever we go live and join us in the live chat. Jeff and Anna, we've done it. Episode 100. I'm excited. It has gone really quick. Jeff, how you feel about episode 100? I'm excited. This is it was interesting kind of looking back a little bit and I'll talk a little bit more later on when we get to kind of our closing thoughts and some of the things that came up just looking through some of the previous notes of mm-hmm. past episodes and stuff like that, but yeah, it's um it's awesome to uh, to be here and this was a good thing to have this week because I'll be honest, getting out of that mode of getting up at like nine o'clock, putting on sweatpants and watching movies while I eat Christmas food all day was not easy this week. No, it was, we really wanted to try and get the family back into the routine of school and work. And I'm like, I planned for the last three to four days before we came back to do that. And we just did not execute that. I was, uh, I was more with you. I'm like, you know what? I'm sure everyone will just roll back into it. Yeah, it'll be fine. Um, Anna, for the 100th episode, I wanted like you know, some sort of party popper or confetti. Yeah. But while we were gone, our producers outfitted the studio with all brand new equipment. So I figured maybe confetti would have been a bad choice. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, they were too preoccupied to make like a really cool hype video, which I thought would be a great way to come into this. Oh, yeah. Like some sort of episode 100 sizzle reel. Yes. Our our, our best takes. (laughs) Jeff's hottest takes. There is no sizzle. Today, <laughs> but we are here. Welcome to the sizzleless 100th episode, Jeff. I give you a lot of credit for going through those old notes. I was just like, you know what? I'm sure something will come to mind. <laughs> Let me stir your memory. Yeah, well, yeah. There's, there's some good ones to, to call out there. Really hoping to piggyback your notes. All right. Well, let's jump into our first story this week: top vehicles to look out for in 2023. The auto industry has a little something for everyone this year. The car experts at Edmunds.com recently came up with the five most noteworthy vehicles that will be available this year. From least expensive to most expensive, here they are. The 2023 Toyota Prius, with faster acceleration, 57 miles per gallon, and, quote, more stylish looks for a Prius, it comes in at $28,000. The 2023 Dodge Hornet, a small SUV with a strong turbocharged 2-liter 4-cylinder engine or a 288-horsepower plug-in hybrid powertrain, starts at $30,000. The 2024 Ford Mustang, now in its 7th generation, the car is powered by updated versions of the 5-liter V8 or, or and turbocharged 2.3-liter engines. It has a new feature that lets it be revved remotely using a fob. So you can show off to your friends. Just like, hey, look at this. Vroom, vroom. That starts at $32,000. The 2023 Honda Pilot, 
Honda's largest SUV adds more passenger space, legroom, and cargo space with room for up to eight passengers, starting at $40,445. And finally, the 2023 Toyota Crown, Toyota's new sedan that is replacing the Avalon. It has a higher driving position and all-wheel drive with two hybrid engine options, and it can reach up to 41 miles per gallon. That comes in at $41,045. The latest models trying to are trying to sway buyers with more power, the latest tech, and Jeff fashionable looks. Will any of these any of these new features sway you into a new automobile this year? Um, not this year. Yeah. We're good, okay. especially seeing as how my daughter just had an interesting driving experience. So we're going to hold off on new vehicles for a little <laughs> oh, bit. Oh no! But um. Interesting list. Obviously, these are there wasn't a lot of um, I don't know established criteria. I guess they they said in, in grab putting this list together. Mm-hmm. Kind of interesting that they would go with a Mustang. I think that's always sort of an interesting vehicle. I don't know yeah. if that's one that really stands out. It's a weird th- number three. Yeah, yeah. The ones that caught my attention and, and probably you guys as well are the first and last ones that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. The, the Prius, first of all, and this was alluded to in the article, but just the things they did from an engineering perspective and a design perspective. They made it look, maybe this is kind of harsh, but they made it look palatable. Like yeah, a, a little Prius. less like a Prius. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. in the past, that was not a real exciting looking vehicle. And when we talk about getting people on board, and, and the other thing that was interesting here is none of these are pure EVs. Mm-hmm. We've got hybrids here, and that's what Toyota does. But again, getting people more excited potentially about making that transition away from an internal combustion engine vehicle, the Prius, again, that's something you could see people gravitating towards just because of the design changes that they made to it, they made to it. The other one I think is really interesting is the Crown mm-hmm. because, again, it's another hybrid, but it's that four-door sedan type of look that everybody was trashing. Like yeah. everybody was getting rid right. of the Malibu and, and everything else. And when you look at it, now they got the, the picture that we have here and the picture that they provided, it's got some special wheels on it. it they did raise it up a little bit, so it's kind of competing more in that CUV mm-hmm. type category as opposed to a sedan. But it's a sedan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and it's got a little bit more power to it, but then with the hybrid, it gets a little bit better gas mileage. So it's, or fuel efficiency, it's an interesting look. And that's the one that I'm going to be paying a little bit more attention to because the overall aesthetics of that one, for somebody like me who's been very reticent to make that transition to an, an EV, mm-hmm. that's the type of look I could get into, yeah. that type of, of vehicle. So I think those two are the ones that really caught my attention. And uh what were your thoughts when it came to some of the new things and new features that we're seeing in automobiles that are going to be hitting the market this year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we've been seeing a lot about full electrics being teased. And so it's sort of easy to assume that automakers have all of their eggs in that basket. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, Jeff, looking at some of these models – well, uh, Anna, takes a minute. <laughs> takes a minute. It's the cold season. It is. Um, it is. One thing that I noticed with all of these is uh, the touch screens. Yeah. So I, I've never been a touch screen guy. Um, and some of these are massive. And when I see some of the uh, mock-ups of these, like uh, what is the one that has – the Mustang has a nearly 14-inch touch screen. Is that necessary? Is that good? You know, it's interesting because it, the touchscreen ideally, it's supposed to simplify everything. And it's also supposed to, it's, it's kind of that gamification element yeah. that we hear about in a lot of industrial controls. So you can see that bleeding over into more consumer applications like, you know, functions on a vehicle. 
Ideally, it should also make it easier and simpler if you are that person who needs to fidget with stuff while you're driving, which you shouldn't. Yeah. Not saying you should. But sometimes it is a distraction. And I think where you're kind of going with this, with it being that large and that prominent, yeah, you could definitely see that being a distraction or people trying to figure out all of the little, you know, navigation streams in terms of getting to where they want to go and and not paying attention to what they should. No, that's, I mean, uh, that's what, I mean, maybe it's just the passing of time slowly crushing me. But I mean, I look at that and I just don't understand how that is something that is uh, makes for a better driving experience for the driver. Uh, you know, I look at some of the new concepts, particularly the one that came out at CES from Chrysler and Stellantis, where the entire dash is all screen and not only screen, but like uh, pairs with your device and you can do video calls right in your dash. And I was thinking like, I don't think that's good. Again, that goes with Damn. like pairing with like a level three autonom- autonomy, but I get that that's where we're going Maybe just. I think it's also become almost a competitive must-have. It gives an upper scale feel yeah. to a lot of these vehicles, so I think that's why it's being embedded. And those electronics and those, that particular platform is becoming less expensive as it becomes more common. Mm-hmm. So it's easier to implement. And I think in a lot of cases, if they don't have that, they almost become less competitive just because they don't have it and everybody else does. I get it's that. sort of kind of keeping pace. Yeah. But I'm with you. I mean, when you look at an analog gauge. Those are pretty simple to read and use, and they're right in front of you. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, I just, I need the basics here. And I mean, maybe keep the bigger screens in the back. I mean, if you want to make an entire divider in between the like front seat and the back seat, maybe that's even soundproof and an entire screen. I'm fine with you that. Are, you are definitely sounding like a man who has had some holiday road trips with two small children. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I have that holiday road song stuck in my head now. You're putting up a full wall. Oh, yeah. Put up a full wall and just make it a screen. Uh, Anna. I hope you're feeling better. And what were your thoughts uh, when it came to some of these new features that we saw coming up um, in 2023, 2024 vehicles? Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Got a little frog there. It's dry in here. Um, it is dry. Uh, yeah. No, I, you know, I came back in to hear you guys talking about some of the infotainment stuff. That was what really struck me because I know that I'm seeing a lot of analysts that are talking about how 2023 is going to show <clears throat> big growth. Um, in ride sharing again. Mm-hmm. I know they've been talking about that for a while. But I do think that automakers kind of have to prepare for that eventuality, whether it's now or in a couple years from now, making those vehicles more exciting, adding more features, making them multi purpose. Um, they're talking about vehicles becoming more like computers on wheels. Mm-hmm. You're seeing more of that design, um, you know, those components co- coming in here with the infotainment systems, making them bigger, making them more um, user friendly. Um, making those cars feel more like mobile devices. And so I just think that, you know, they have to make these vehicles attractive and that's what they're doing here. And it was interesting, I think, because, you know, as Jeff mentioned, no pure EVs on this list. Um, It's a good reminder, I think, that that automakers, while they are dumping a ton of money into that Mm -hmm. and they're dumping a ton of money into autonomous, they're still putting out cars with new and exciting features and it just doesn't get as much airtime. And it's not just dry in here, but with all this new equipment came the packaging and cardboard that has just got to be, it's got to be in the air. Do you think that was a cardboard? Yeah, you're just, yeah, you're inhaling. It's completely uh, cardboard dust. I have, yeah, some sort of styrofoam lung (laughs) condition. (laughs) Well, our next most popular story this week was a bit of a surprise for me, um, but has a heck of a headline. 
musical instrument manufacturing unit raided for illegal reptile skins. The Forest Department in India has seized 117 reptile skins that were being used to manufacture musical instruments. A factory in a Mumbai suburb was raided and authorities confiscated the hides of Indian monitor lizards, also known as the Bengal monitor. The poached wildlife was being used to make a drum-like instrument called a gumat. A 72-year-old man has been arrested for violating the Indian Wildlife Protection Act of 1972, which makes the trade of any animal or its body parts illegal. Officials found the dried skins in the house and and backyard and seized several of these gumats. The man who was arrested basically said that he's been doing this for at least the last 40 years. Jeff, the first thing that I thought about was 117 reptile skins doesn't seem like a lot of material. But I'm thinking like a gecko initially. You know, that's my standard lizard size. But it's my understanding that this... Indian monitor lizard is like bigger than me. Um, yeah, they're big. You know, if I, we were talking a little bit about this before the monitor lizard. The first time I remember seeing this, I didn't realize it at the time until we we're doing some research here. Was when I was a kid watching professional wrestling, oh, and okay. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat would bring this <laughs> thing down to the ring. And even then, you're going, "Are you kidding me?" He's yeah. bringing anyway. He took it into the ring. He was in a cage. <clears throat> he kept it in a cage. Oh, okay. it was there to fend off. Jake the Snake Roberts boa constrictor. I mean, so, makes you know. sense. Traditional <laughs> pro wrestling storytelling. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, th- this one, once he got into this, this is a head scratcher for a number of reasons. First of all, he said he's been doing this for 40 years. Well, it's been on the protected <laughs> list for 50 years. Okay. So a little math says <laughs> yeah. you're, you're off there. Being a little more, I guess, cold or pragmatic about this, they're endangered. Okay, Mm -hmm. these are animals that aren't real crazy about people. It's not like they're just wandering around the streets. You have to go find them and get them. And they're not as readily available as what has been shown to be a very good replacement, which is goats. Oh. Which you can raise in your backyard. Yeah. So just being looking at from a more of a cost-effective supply chain efficiency (laughs) perspective, if you will— you can raise the alternative and not have any legal issues and be more readily available and easier to get as yeah. opposed to breaking the law and hunting down mm-hmm. these scarce animals. Yeah. So not a smart decision. Even when you're looking at something, and I don't want to say this this instrument incorrectly, gumat. I believe it's gumat, yeah. Gumat. It is kind of a traditional drum that's used in a lot of things. But even those who are very much into the traditions <clears throat> have said, don't use monitor lizard skins anymore. Mm-hmm. We're using goat skins. This is what you should use. Yeah. So for this individual to do this, basically it just seems either there was some sort of financial benefit to using these illegal skins and doing what he was doing and trying to play the whole, oh, I don't know. I'm an old man and confused card. <laughs> I'm an old man and confused. Um, doesn't really play well here. He's a purist. You know, back in his day, a gumat was a lizard skin. Not a goat. Uh, no, I don't understand this either. And Anna, his reaction was what kind of threw me because he's like, what are you going to do? Yeah. I'm 72 and I've been doing this forever. Yeah, exactly. Like too late. Yeah. There's um, too many gumats out there with lizards. Yeah. And, the, you know, I, I think uh, the easy assumption is that like this is uh, a crime that impacts, um, you know, these animals alone. Which mm-hmm. it does significantly, right? I mean, but animal poaching affects entire ecosystems. As Jeff mentioned, these are endangered 
Um, it tends to create a circular pattern where more poaching creates more scarcity and therefore it just feeds itself until those animals no longer exist. But also illegal wildlife trade and poaching has some very significant human consequences. In doing research for this, I came across some data that was published by the International Wildlife Defense Foundation. Okay. And they outline the impact of poaching on human health. And I think this is all the more impactful to consider when we co- we're coming off this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but they describe the emergence of numerous zoonotic diseases that have been linked directly to wildlife crime. Oh. Um, and these include links to SARS, Ebola, monkeypox, others. I mean, it's just, it's pretty oh. alarming. Mm-hmm. And they cite CDC claims that 75% of de- diseases reach humans through animals. <laughs> In fact, made more worrying, they say, because the illegal entry routes used by smugglers bringing exotic wildlife and their parts into international markets are unable to be effectively monitored, let alone quarantined and controlled. Yeah, they're not too they're not too concerned over the cleanliness of their no facilities. No, and they're not above boards. They're not being tracked. Right. So um, so the victims in these types of cases are not just animals they're potentially people as well and the data illustrates just how quickly and intensely this can get out of hand and spread and create diseases that are novel and there's no treatments i mean we just saw that right Mm -hmm. so we're um, still in it we're still in it yeah um so obviously there that's a component obviously we don't know if if that's uh, relevant in this case but it is all uh, you know relevant i think overall to this idea of illegal trade of poached animals. <clears throat> but secondly, and I think from just a very practical standpoint, anytime you flout a rule that exists for everyone, you give your business a competitive advantage that's just truly unfair to to your competitors, right? It mm-hmm. creates um, so some negative competition elements in that market. So in this case, this person admitting that he had just blatantly done this for 50 years, um, I think that that is horrifying in this case needs to be taken seriously. No, agreed. One thing that stood out to me is that I have never seen the appeal of buying like non-food specific items because they were made of an animal material. You know, I've never understood the animal hide clothing. I've never understood. I've just, I I never got it. Um, And so something like this just makes no sense to me other than maybe he realized that he could make a buck and he's always done it. Seemed like a pretty... Overall, small operation. If it was taking place in a suburb, you know, I wonder how. Um, what was it called? A like a manufacturing. It was. It was a manufacturing. They didn't call it a factory. It was a manufacturing unit. Like, yeah. does that mean the spare room was used to make these drums? Um, I don't know. Has have you guys ever had any appeal towards? buying things. I know Anna hasn't. I don't even need to ask you that question. But Jeff in particular, you know, animal material. Jeff, Not do you have any partic- leather chaps? I think that's what David's asking right now. I'm working I want to make sure this is very clear. I own no chaps. Okay. It's just a record. Clarify now. that. Prove it. <laughs> to the closet. Yeah. Um no, no, I haven't, but I think one of the things is we when we look at this, and I think a lot of I think we're probably in the majority, mm-hmm. look at it and say, what is the utility there? Why mm-hmm. does this need to be of a certain material? Okay. Now leather is one thing. I think that's yeah. universal. We play softball, we have leather gloves because mm-hmm. it's durable, it lasts better, it it breathes a little bit, it can it can extend, you know, it's got some pliability to it, which whatever you need. So there's there are certain applications there. But I agree with you. When it gets into certain lizard skinned um, apparel. Yeah. People, they're just into it. And I think they lose perspective on a lot of the things Anna was talking about mm-hmm. in terms of the fact that it's not just a piece of material. 
that was a living, breathing creature that had a place in the ecosystem. And you're potentially creating other issues by not respecting that fact. Yeah. And I thought you raised a really interesting point about how this illegal trade is not just, you know, has like a real impact on disease. Mm -hmm. Um, That was a part of it that I never really thought about, even though um, we cover, um, we follow U.S. Customs and Border Protection. And every once in a while, you see a shipment of hides or illegal animals uh, trying to make its way into the U.S. It always confuses me. Just like, where was that going? Like, why? Yeah, Yeah, I don't even understand. All right. Well, our next most popular story this week. Unannounced rocket launch causes UFO scare. Just before the new year, South Korea's military test-fired a solid-fueled rocket. A jagged tendril of red and white vapor shot into the sky behind a bright white light. The unannounced launch triggered a public scare as people thought it was a UFO appearance or a potential missile attack from the north. The rocket launch was part of the country's efforts to build space-based surveillance and improve national defense. The military didn't notify the public because it involved sensitive military security issues. Jeff, they didn't notify the public, but if the public is going to see it anyway, I feel like a simple heads up makes the most sense. I'm uh, I'm with you there, especially given the location. (laughs) Yeah. There's a ton of tension there. I think previous to this, there's actually a situation where a handful of North Korean drones actually made it into South Korean airspace. So you can appreciate how tensions would be even heightened beyond what they typically are in in this neck of the woods. It was four days after that, four days after these drones crossed the border for the first time in like five years. So people were kind of on high alert. (laughs) There's that. And I think it's also, it brings out sort of an interesting social layer to things as well, because now space launches have become so commonplace. You see so much video footage and imagery of them you expect to see a certain thing. There's Mm -hmm. a certain aesthetic visual that you get from a rocket launch. You're used to seeing the big clouds of smoke and and everything else. And that comes from the fact that this was a different type of fuel that was used here. Just to offer a little context, and I'm sure there's people with aerospace and munitions expertise that I'm I'm under-explaining this to great length, but basically they were using the equivalent of, you know, barrels of gunpowder. It's a solid fuel source. So it has that initial bang, boom, it's gone. Mm -hmm. When you look at a lot of commercial launches, it's very similar. They use that initially, and then it switches over to a liquid propellant, which is why you have the initial big cloud and then kind of the, I don't know, the vapor um, um, trail, if you will. So the fact that this was just a solid fuel source exclusively, that explains why it looked so different, Mm -hmm. which again goes back to your point of Give them a heads up mm-hmm. that something's yeah. going on. Yeah, you know? it's it's not like they're going to perform the test and there's going to be no trace of it. Or maybe, I mean, yeah. to me, when I looked at the tendril of vapor, it looked like the test really didn't go that well. Well, and not to be conspiracy theory guy about this, but the fact that they didn't give you a heads up, they used a different type of fuel source to make this happen very quickly. Maybe there were some more offensive elements involved here. Oh, I mean, okay. From a military perspective, going on the offensive that didn't pan out maybe i don't i don't know um but they did they were come forward and they did say this was for some monitoring um, um equipment so yeah i don't know it's, it's interesting but again creating that type of panic doesn't mm-hmm. really help oh. your situation you know when i looked at the story i read the headline i'm like okay people just freak out over everything nowadays and then i clicked on the story <laughs> i looked at the photo and i'm like nope no that is weird that is mm-hmm. a weird sight in the sky 
And that would cause, I could understand how that could cause a little fear and anxiety. Yeah, it seemed pretty irresponsible um, of the government to do that, considering what had just happened. Jeff mentioned the drone incident. So they um, they learned uh, a short time later that when the North Korean drones entered South Korea's airspace, um, they actually, one of the drones actually entered the northern end of a 2.2-mile radius no-fly zone around the South Korea president's office oh. in Seoul. Mm-hmm. So that was actually a pretty yeah. big deal. Um, the drones reportedly flew over the South Korean airspace for hours, and um, the South Korean military was unable to take them down. So since that incident understandably sparked some c- criticism about South Korea's air defense, um, you can see why people would be maybe on edge about what's going on there. Um, Al Jazeera reported that at the time um, – where North Korea was posing a growing threat as it developed ballistic missile technologies, including test launching an unprecedented number of missiles last year. Um, the, the drone incident likely stoked a lot of fear amongst South Korea's citizens, perhaps about their own vulnerability. Um, so to me, making an unannounced test here was just timing wise, just very, I don't know, seemed like a really bad call. <laughs> What that? Or just come out after the fact and be like, like immediately after immediately, the fact. Yeah. We just launched something. It was important to Here's keep it, it secret. Yep. Yeah. Not wait, not be reactive, but be a little more proactive. With exactly. It. And, and, you know, like secondly, you know, we, we spoke on a recent episode about the, the concept of alarm fatigue. We talked about a factory where there was some retired equipment that was regularly sounding alarms. And so the personnel in the plant became so used to that noise that they didn't respond to it anymore, really hear it anymore. Mm-hmm. And that caused a problem later down the road when there was a real incident and nobody, it just didn't register with anyone. Mm-hmm. Like this is that in real life, this kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. this is why you don't blast tornado sirens whenever or, mm-hmm. um, you know, fire alarms whenever because people lose confidence in those alerts and they don't know, you know what I mean? So if, if, yeah. if you're in a situation where you're uh, at risk militarily, and maybe you do get attacked in those seconds, like precious seconds, people taking cover really mean a lot in those scenarios. And people are standing around being like, hmm, I wonder if it's a test again or, you know, we saw this happen before and it was nothing. Yeah, um, that that's really a scary uh, situation to put your your population. In, and I just don't think it was a good idea. No, agreed. Jeff, you raised the point of more things being propelled into the sky more frequently now. It's just uh how we're doing business now. Right. So I looked into this new Pentagon office that was recently set up to track UFO reports because it has seen an increased number of reports. Nothing yet has been confirmed as alien life. <laughs> Nothing yet. <laughs> that we know or we're being told. That we're being told. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We know how to read behind between the lines. The name was changed from the unidentified aerial phenomena to all domain anomaly. To account for the fact that some of the investigations deal with unexplained sightings underwater, yeah, on the surface and in space, Nessie, yeah. So, although <laughs> she's, mo- she's migrating, <laughs> <laughs> although most of the reports still deal with things that are in the sky, I found it interesting that a they recently had to basically bring back to life this. Uh, uh, new part of the agency to track unidentified flying objects had to rename it because we're seeing so many weirder things <laughs> on the surface, air and water. And I found that a little unsettling, but it's just interesting how, as some of this technology has become more available to more people, 
we're seeing a lot of weirder things in the sky. And sometimes it might not just be a glare, mm-hmm. but also not an alien. Well, I think that's a lot of, there's a lot of, because it's a political organization, there's a lot of CYA mentality in terms of let's cover all our bases so we can say we were at least trying in case something weird does pop up that we weren't paying attention to, I guess. Yeah. I would love to man the phones for this a day or like Ugh. the email inbox just to see the for photos. A, for a little while. Yeah. For like maybe a, mm-hmm. a long, like three day, like a three day, uh, three days there. Just, I want to see the photos that are sent in. And the descriptions as to where it happened. Just like, man, it's that same lady again. There, there's somebody out there going, yeah, come on. Try it for a couple of days. Oh, yeah. your thing. <laughs> Please take this yeah. off my hands for yeah. a day. Our next most popular story this week, an 1100 horsepower hypercar runs on plastic waste. Bertany has introduced a new Limited edition hypercar that runs on plastic waste. The GB1 <clears throat> the GB110 which represents the company's 110th anniversary has 1100 horsepower under the hood. It could reach 60 miles per hour in about 2.79 seconds. The fuel is made by Bertoni partner Select Fuel. The company has a patented technology that converts polycarbonate materials into renewable fuel. The company turns about 75% of the plastic waste it recycles into usable fuel. The GB110 has a top speed of of about 260 miles per hour and is called a, quote, automotive work of art. Although the company is only going to make about 33 of these works of art. Jeff, your thoughts on this new hypercar as to whether or not it's run by a flux capacitor <laughs> and, you know, the necessity of a hypercar that they're only going to make 30 of. Well, first of all, that comparison to a flux capacitor, you're not that far off. Like that's not, I mean, because when you look at this company, Select Fuel, that's really what was drawn to me. I mean, we've, we cover a lot of these hypercars and you can do pretty much what you want to from an engineering perspective, depending on what your real end goal here is. Yeah. And I think their end goal was really to promote their capabilities and mm-hmm. what how these vehicles can be fueled and what that means going forward. Yeah. A thing that oh, leads to the it's thing, gonna be the thing dynamic that we here. Yes. 2023, the first, first one. one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at Select Fuel, this is a company I think that we need to watch. I think they've got some great things going for them because in addition to the plastics, they can also, to create this renewable fuel, they're using biomass, they're using agricultural waste, they're using things like grass clippings and food scraps and extra, all that kind of stuff. That's incredible. Again, it is it is like the flux capacitor. <laughs> yeah. It's all of that stuff that they're using. Um, the, the, the president and CEO of this company used to work in waste management, so he saw all this oh. stuff coming in, developed an appreciation for the fact that plastics – the, they're they're made from petrochemicals. They're made from oil. So, being able to figure out a way to br- break all this stuff down to produce a fuel that can run an internal combustion engine is incredible. Mm-hmm. So, I think this is a company to be on the lookout for. But when we look at this, and we look at some of the things that are going on in aviation with fuels, there, I mean, we've seen passenger jets being flown using cooking oil, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. What's missing is infrastructure to collect all these materials. Get it to the place that needs to turn it into fuel so we can use it. Yeah. That's the billion-dollar idea. If somebody can figure out how to collect and cost-effectively get all that stuff to the right place, that could be a game-changer going forward. So the car is cool. Yeah. 33 of them. Somebody's going to have a neat toy. Yeah. I, I get all that. What got me excited was this renewable fuel that they're developing. Well, you talk about the infrastructure to 
collect all these materials. I feel like if somebody could fi- figure it out, it would be the head of Select Fuel who is, you know, a waste management executive, right? You would think there. I mean, there's a lot of companies that are involved in this. Honeywell's another big one that's mm-hmm. involved in a lot of these aviation fuels. Talking to those folks, they were flat out. They said, we've had the technology. We don't know how to get all of the materials. There's just that gap right now. Like get the materials to them or like get the, the right materials? To oversimplify, you know, yeah. we were talking about cooking oils being a great source of these renewable or sustainable aviation flu, yeah. uh, fuels. How do you get, how do you collect it from McDonald's yeah. and get it to the facility that needs to do what they need to do to turn it into the fuel to get it into the jet? Okay. Mm-hmm. It's that gap right there. And probably cost effectively because that's a yeah. lot of small portions of the material. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Anna, when you saw the GB110 from Bertoni, what were your thoughts? I agree with Jeff that we need to keep an eye on select fuel, but I feel like for a different reason. Oh, no. Um, we First of all, I think we talk a lot about the need to diversify our efforts toward clean energy. And so I think it's exciting to not be relying on an all-EV future here, be, be looking at, you know, cleaner burning, renewable fuel sources, Um Obviously, also addressing the massive problem that we have with plastic waste because we know that the recycling business is broken, but I don't think that's getting a lot of attention right now still. Um, And so this obviously would be a great way to kind of hit um, two birds with that one stone. So it's exciting to see this type of development. However, I think that we need to know more about Select Fuel because – the prevailing science around plastic, especially burning plastic, is that it creates horribly toxic emissions. Mm-hmm. And this has been tried in other applications, um, this refuse-derived fuel like plastic waste fuel. Um, and it's been criticized for competing with and displacing clean renewable energy because of its toxic contents. Um, the International Pollutants Elimination Network even embarked on a series of studies when Australia, for example, began investing heavily in plastic waste to fuel processing. And they basically accused the country of using the approach as a Trojan horse to export plastic waste in a different way. Oh, okay. After China and Southeast Asia had banned um, taking that plastic waste um, as an import. Um, because this is a patent in process, and if you go on Select Fuel's website, uh, there's very little detail about yeah. how they do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I found very little detail from outside parties saying, like, this is how they can do it without creating any toxic emissions. Um, it's like it's like <laughs> the diagrams on their site are like, plastic, patented process, fuel. Um, <laughs> there's no detail. So um, to me, I just think it's very vague, and I would like to know some specific details as to how this is being done. Because right now, to me, not knowing that, it feels a little bit like greenwashing. Yeah. Um, and or at least that that's a potential that we would need to consider. Okay. Um, not knowing like how how this is being done because I, I no one's ever done this effectively before. So selective fuel. Reach out to Anna. Explain it to me. Let her see under the hood so she can Like I'm five. Yeah. Just, (laughs) (laughs) I want to know how it's done. She'll sign the NDA. Mm -hmm. I will. So just playing devil's advocate here. Let's just say their their process is not as clean as we'd like it to be. Mm -hmm. Okay. Isn't getting that process going and then, uh, I understand this is not a great track record here, regulating after the fact, isn't that better than what we have right now? I don't know. Because I don't know how toxic it is. I mean, I think also, you know, for us to 
to assume that it's a great process and that it's better than what we have just because it's different or just because it uses it's trying to use like waste products. I don't think that that's I mean, we've learned a lot of lessons along the way, hard lessons about ethanol and, you know, things that we thought were the next big thing that we found out later were not working. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's better. Maybe so. Maybe if it was watched a little bit more closely, um, because I do think that there is a big opportunity. There is a lot of waste out there to find a new, you know, yeah. a new way to use it. And I mean, if this could be done less toxic in a less, less toxic manner, it would be beneficial. Yeah, I guess my perspective is we've got the end product that we know works. Let's work on the process. Understanding maybe it isn't right right now. Maybe it's not even select fuel that's going to make it right. Mm-hmm. But the only way we're going to get that process figured out is by doing it. As or, long as there's not like an ecological disaster around the facility. Well, right? <laughs> right. And that's I think there's just a lot we don't know. Like this network, um, you know, their words were this this is um displacing clean um and renewable energy and competing with it. I don't know if that's the answer. Yeah. You know, if if it's not but again, I don't know. Maybe it is a clean process, but I just need to know more about it. And I couldn't find anything else about sure. it. And just knowing what we do know about plastic, yeah. um, and this has never worked before, I want to know how it works now. No blind faith from Anna. No. Understandably. I looked into the company a little bit more. So Bertoni was founded in 1912, and the company actually inspired the Lamborghini Countach, the Alfa Romeo Montreal, and the Aston Martin Bertoni Spider. The company went bankrupt back in 2014, and the assets were sold off in 2018. The company was run by this the father, Nuccio Bertoni, who died in 1997. Then it seemed like his wife and two daughters kind of took over the manufacturing side of the – or weren't that interested in the manufacturing side of the business, wound up selling the factory to Fiat, and only ran the manufacturing for about 10 years. Then – in 2020, a pair of brothers, Jean-Franc and Mauro Ricci, bought the rights to the name so they could relaunch Bertoni cars. They're only making limited edition, quote, ultra high-end sports cars. But I thought it was like a really cool story of this brand that has a big legacy, kind of when you kind of runs into a traditional problem that you sometimes have with these multi-generational family companies where all of a sudden you run into a generation that's like, you know what? Not for me. <laughs> and uh, and then it dies. And, uh, you know, they saw the value in the brand and they're bringing it back kind of um, and sticking to the uh, legacy of a premium product. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. You can definitely see the Lamborghini influence oh, on yeah. this vehicle. It's a cool yeah. looking car. Yeah. Um, John Dearden, who is watching us live, says Porsche has a new fuel, too, that he's recently read about that contains ice and oh, ice. No. Or are these two different thoughts? That can retain oh retaining ice and hydrogen from water, but it's eight dollars a gallon. Ooh. It's a little steep, but I mean, but this is Porsche where this is where we're trending, right? We're yeah. trying to figure something out. So yeah, those fuel prices are higher, mm. but I mean, you gotta scale it. Big picture, Anna. If it worked, would you be willing to pay more for a fuel that was made from uh, recycled items in a non toxic manner? I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I like personally, but I, I don't believe that lots of people would. Yeah. We see how Americans freak out about gas prices over like 25 cents a gallon. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, we we 
got solar put on our house, even knowing that the payback on that was like forever. Yeah. It was, but it's just something that was important to us, you know? So mm-hmm. I can see like using that if that was available, especially if it cut like trash out of the equation. Like that's amazing. That would be awesome. I think that would be a big one for me. Whereas other renewable, other renewables are sometimes, this one's made from like a direct waste product and we have a huge waste problem. Mm-hmm. And if I thought I was doing some sort of anything to help with that, especially living close enough to a landfill that on a bad day it was bad. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, if I thought I was doing just anything to kind of cut away at that, um, that would that'd be enough to sway me. Well, I think plastics especially because I can't even think of a devil's advocate like argument to to make about plastic waste and the issues that it creates. Like I don't even know how you try. Oh, like why it's good. Like (laughs) how do you even try to diffuse it? Like there's too much there. I mean, you know, I think birds like to use uh, old plastic containers (laughs) to build their nests, and we would be taking that away from them. Yeah, like uh, a lot of bird nests that you see that are made in like Just, the plastic uh, troughs from Chinese food. Yeah, like Coke bottles and stuff. And, mm. you know, yeah. you, I'm, you would I'm, have you, to. I'm done a 180. I'm totally, yeah, yeah totally <laughs> we found it. Now. We found it. Well, our most popular story this week is Rolls Royce ready to test massive jet engine. Rolls Royce has finished building and is ready to test the Ultra Fan. Ultra Fan. A technology demonstrator. The first test is expected to take place early next year on Testbed 80 and will be operated using 100% sustainable aviation fuel. The Ultrafan has a fan diameter of 140 inches and offers a 25% fuel efficiency improvement compared with the first generation of Trent engine. Ultrafan is... Is a long-term solution for net zero aviation, but in the interim, technology proven by the Ultrafan development program will be transferred to current Trent engines to deliver better fuel efficiency and to reduce emissions. Testbed 80 is the world's largest and smartest testbed. It opened in 2020 and has already completed several hours of experimental engine testing. Ultrafan has the potential to improve fuel efficiency of both narrow-body and wide-body aircraft by up to 10%. Anna, this story was a bit of a surprise to me that uh, how popular it was with our um, readership. One thing that I liked the most about this story was how they came out and said, hey, this is not the next thing, but we're going to take pieces of it and we're going to add it to our engines until it's ready to roll out. It's progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wish they would have not named it Ultrafan because that was really dumb. But. I love it. Ultrafan. It seems like some sort of, uh, you know, offshoot from an Asian community, uh, uh, like of the Power Rangers or something like the Ultrafan 7. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or like how much you love Taylor Swift. Like I would I mean, call you Swift, an, an ultra fan. I am an ultra fan. Mm-hmm. I helped crash Ticketmaster's Ticket website. Yeah. And I failed, you know. I'm a failure for my niece. So, Swift. so, so the, um, the progress is great. I think, um, uh, you know, uh, the world economic forum recently published a piece by the CEO of Heathrow airport. His name is John Holland K who calls sustainable aviation fuel or SAF, the only option for long haul flights to decarbonize. Um, this is a solution that has actually been in use. He says since world war II when oil was scarce and really continues to be underutilized. 
The thing I like about this Rolls Royce story is that if production is ramped up on SAF, it can be used now without major modifications to airliners in many cases. And I think that makes it an easy path for airlines and manufacturers to point to ways to be decarbonizing without them having to invest in design changes. Like, well, if we'll use the fuel if it's scaled, we'll use the fuel if it's available. You got to make more of it. You got to make it cost less. They've been saying that for years, right? Mm -hmm. And I think to to me, it's sort of an excuse to kick the can down the road. Um, In this case, Rolls-Royce has really spent a ton of money on this engine, and it offers, as you said, 25% improvement in fuel efficiency on its own. And then they plan to use SAF for the first run. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No promises after that. Yeah. But I think, you know, it's critical to be focusing on both the equipment side and the fuel side, not just the fuel. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, you're going to be seeing, I I know we're seeing other aerospace companies kind of get on board and look at fuel efficient designs. Um, To see Rolls-Royce tout this type of solution, this suite of solutions that they say they have to offer to support sustainable air travel, it's always good. And when these big names do it, I think it it creates some impetus for others to do because obviously these efficiency gains will create a big competitive advantage for, um, you know, customers who want to save on fuel, whatever type of fuel it is. Mm -hmm. So kudos to Rolls-Royce here um, taking some steps in that direction. Jeff, one thing that I found interesting was the testbed and just a testament to how new testbed 80 was, was that they said it's had, you know, several hours of experimental <laughs> engine hours. testing. It's just like, so you turn it on like once. It's like, yeah, turn no, the lights it, on. Yeah. I pushed a broom around. It ran. It's good. Ran. Uh, what about some of the fuel savings that we're going to see with this uh, engine, how that might translate to future aircraft? Well, first of all, you know, commenting on why this performs so well, I think the image definitely helped. Mm-hmm. That was oh, a yeah. pretty incredible visual. I think the turbine itself is like 10 feet. Um, so just looking at, it, I mean, it's just monstrous. It's yeah, it's, it's an ultra fan. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's living up to its name. Yeah. yeah, is this is this the only thing bigger than the big ass fan, the ultra fan? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the one thing that that brought to my mind though a little bit in looking at this is that last line where it said it's about a ten percent fuel efficiency gain. Mm-hmm. When you look at the test bed and the engine, this is like a seven hundred million dollar project. Yeah, I can appreciate. Again, the thing that leads to the thing, and that's what this is. But boy, that is a tough return on investment for me. I don't know. When you're looking at this from an initial perspective, I know Rolls-Royce isn't hurting, mm-hmm. okay? But you just wonder if there's not, at some point, when you look at what the ROI is, how much it makes sense. I mean, there, what it, there's got to be something more down the line, you think, than just a 10% gain. Yeah. You'd need more than that in my mind, I guess. Understanding this is the initial approach. You'll be able to have that $100 million investment in that test bed for whatever you need down the line as well. But mm-hmm. looking at this specifically, that is a big price tag um, for it, not a lot of immediate payoff, I guess. I think that ROI will come faster than you think. Like even at 10%. Let's say that they continue to improve it and it's better than 10%. But I looked at Simple Flying and just looked at a Boeing 747 Quadjet. That burns one gallon of fuel every second. You know, yeah, during a five-hour flight, a Boeing 747 is going to burn 18,000 gallons of fuel. So, I mean, when we're talking about a 10% savings across a fleet, you know. There's scale there. Yeah. That's true. Um, The Ultra Fan, one cool thing I thought about the Ultra Fan, uh, other than the name, I do dig the name, uh, was the Power Gearbox, which delivers 64 uh, megawatts on test, which is an aerospace power record. Uh, Jeff, you talked a little bit about the investment. 
This test bed took Rolls-Royce three years and more than $108 million to create. So Rolls-Royce is heavily into this. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they're kind of putting their money where their uh, mouth is, trying to make some real change. And even if it's incremental improvements, it could be pretty substantial going forward. All right. Well, let's move on to In Case You Missed It. The stories that maybe weren't as popular on the website, regardless of how hard you you know, worked on writing them. <laughs> But still stand to make an impact on the industry going forward. Totally fine with it. (laughs) Uh, And I'm going to start with you this week. What is your in case you missed it? Sure. I picked a story titled Worker Strikes and Union Elections Surged in 2022. I thought this was an interesting report because we've talked anecdotally about how there's been an increase in worker confidence, if you will, Mm -hmm. that has led to more union activity, more strikes, um, more pushback from workers on general pay and compensation packages, benefits, things like that. So I thought it'd be interesting to review in terms of actual data points that were outlined in this article. So as reported here, they said there have been at least 20 major work stoppages involving at least 1,000 workers each in 2022, up from 16 in 2021. Wow. In companies of all sizes, there were 385 strikes in 2022, up from 270 in 2021. Kind of a big jump there. That is a huge jump, yeah. And then at the same time, workers filed over 2,000 petitions to form unions during the year, the most since 2015. Um, so while the data does back up an increase, in some cases I would say strikingly so, the report also describes that activity um, is historically tepid was the word. And if you look at that data <laughs> – it's clear that labor, while experiencing a, a bit of a renaissance here, is nowhere near at the level in its heyday. Take, for example, the number of work stoppages has been plunging for decades from nearly 200 as recently as 1980, um, while union elections typically exceeded 5,000 a year bef- oh, wow. before the 1980s. Okay. As of 2021, union membership was at about the lowest level on record at 10.3%. In the 1950s, over one in three workers belonged to a union. Um, so I think we know that it's changed a lot, but that kind of put it into stark relief, which was interesting. The author, his name's uh, Merrick Masters, and he's um, a labor expert at Wayne State University. He said, quote, as a labor scholar, I agree that the evidence shows a surge in union activism. The obvious question is, do these developments manifest a tipping point? And his conclusion is that while there are some significant reasons to believe some boost in organized labor activity will continue, quote, the deck is still heavily stacked against the unions with unsupportive labor laws and very few employers showing real receptivity to having a unionized workforce, which is leaving him unconvinced that the recent signs of progress represent a turning point. Mm. One thing he adds is that there's an ace up the sleeve of labor, so to speak, um, considering that public support of labor unions is very high right now. And if labor can somehow exploit that public sentiment in their favor, now is the time. Um, So I don't know. I thought those were some interesting stats. What do you guys think about what's happening here? I thought those were interesting stats. I definitely, looking at the chart of the strikes from 1980 to present, Mm -hmm. that is striking. It's a steep dip. I'm sorry. Yep. Unintended pun. Not even a good one. Um, but I don't know. It's uh, one thing that we see a lot on our website is a lot of either incredibly pro uh, union sentiment or very much anti union. And there's yeah. no sort of in between. I wish that we could get back to more of a common ground where 
there's an understanding that there is both a good and a bad with union and, you know, maybe working together. Uh, it raises all ships, so to speak. Um, Jeff, what were your thoughts on the report? Some of the numbers? And I, maybe I missed it. And some of those numbers you were going through, did mm-hmm. it differentiate between like um, the types of locations that are seeing more union elections? Cause I know a lot of the stuff that we see is Amazon's having a ton of union elections mm-hmm. without actually getting a union formalized. Starbucks is another one. Yeah. We see a lot of similar types of businesses where employees are trying to unionize and they just, they don't get enough backing internally and definitely not any support from the corporation. So I think it's, it's interesting in those situations, those environments. And then when you sort of segregate manufacturing out a little bit mm-hmm. and look at some of the differences, I think one of the reasons that there are fewer strikes is there is a little bit more government governance in terms of like OSHA EPA, things like that, that are coming in to help clean up just the work environment. Yeah. And when you are making those investments in the facility, hopefully that would also be leading to making investments in training and employees and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think there's also been a lot of norms when you look at insurance. Mm-hmm. There's sort of become a an expectation for a lot of places to offer certain levels of compensation and benefits that in the past was not there mm-hmm. and came about because of a lot of the union uh, work and the strikes and things like that. So I think it's there's a prevailing thought of why do I need to pay union dues when all of this stuff is already here? Like I don't have the same, there's problems. There's always Mm going to be those conflicts, but it's not at the same heightened level as it was in the past. Well, also based on the worker shortage, some of these improvements for workers are coming as a result of just the competitive landscape to try and get labor in the door. Mm -hmm. Um, Anna, sorry, any response to Jeff's take on, um, the labor situation? I mean, you raise an interesting question, which is, did the Affordable Care Act influence this in any way? Because to your point about insurance benefits, um, that's something that wasn't always available for people just on the market if they didn't have a job or a good job. And I know that that was a big component of people's negotiations in, in certain areas with unions. Now that they can get that elsewhere, does that make a difference? People don't want to pay union dues to explore that because they can already get insurance. I don't know. But um, they did point out in the article, I thought this was an interesting stat that I did not read before, but they said that workers won 76% of the 1,363 elections that were held in 2022. So, um, you know, these these demonstrations and these elections seem to be working largely where they are. Um, As you mentioned, some of those companies, those very big companies we we read about those individually, like, mm-hmm. you know, Bessemer for Amazon and all that stuff. That's just gets a lot of attention. Long Island um, warehouse trying to unionize. But um, but largely overall, and this includes very small companies as well, um, this stuff is working. But again, in the context of history, not not really a big jump. You know, I think there's a big, big element, too, when you look at a lot of those automotive plants in the southeast. One of the reasons they were able to go there or they were attractive to those companies is those were – non-union shops coming in mm-hmm. and we've seen them struggle to try to get unions in the door there mm-hmm. too because there is a there when the community rallies around a certain element of that operating infrastructure that way that manufacturing plant's going to run i think that's also difficult to overcome well my in case you missed it this week is a story about peloton and peloton is going to pay nine nineteen million dollars for recall failures Peloton this week agreed to pay a $19 million civil penalty to resolve charges that the company knowingly failed to immediately report that its Tread Plus treadmill contained a defect that could lead to serious injury. 
In 2018 and 2019, Peloton received multiple reports of pull-under and entrapment incidents in the rear of the treadmills, including reports of injuries. Despite this information, Peloton did not immediately report to the CPSC as required by law. By the time Peloton filed the report, the company had received more than 150 reports, including the death of a child. Peloton and the CPSC jointly announced a recall on May 5, 2021, but the company still distributed another 38 recalled treadmills. Now, I wanted to stop at this part of the story because this alone just kind of blew my mind um, as to why any company would, after receiving multiple reports of injury and entrapment, still continue to put that product out on the market is inexcusable. And I don't even understand that, which uh, one of the commissioners came out and said, this is one of the largest civil penalties that it's ever handed out to a manufacturer because of how egregious it was. Now, another part of the story that I found interesting was that while all four of the CPSC commissioners accepted the settlement agreement, one commissioner, Peter Feldman, expressed concern over a lack of what he calls coherent enforcement policy when it comes to civil penalties. In a statement, Feldman compared the Peloton statement or settlement to the Vornado air penalty, another recent failure to report case involving fatalities, a number of a same number of incidents and evidence of aggravating factors. Vornado settled for 7.5 million as recently as July 2022, which Feldman at the time called woefully inadequate. In this particular case, Vornado repeatedly failed to report a fire hazard with its space heaters, which led to the death of a 90-year-old Minnesota man in December 2017. Feldman, in a statement, says, quote, I still do not know how to explain the discrepancy in settlement amounts. No one at the commission has articulated a coherent underlying doctrine or principle, and without principled decision-making, the product safety community will remain confused about the expectations the commission is setting for how we will deal with similar conduct. This kind of, as we were putting together this story, really took a turn for me because I couldn't believe that there wasn't this structure already in place and that two different settlements within six months of each other Mm -hmm. could be so drastically different. I don't know if you guys had a chance to look into this story at all, but I found it kind of surprising. Yeah, it's confusing to me as well that um, if this person on the council can't explain how the settlements are determined, then no one can, right? But I guess you see similar instances with the court system in terms of how companies and people are penalized and um but but that's you know that's a very disparate system right so i don't know that doesn't make any sense um as as for the 38 recalled treadmills that were sold after um the company received the you know injunction or whatever you would call it uh to me that seems like just very inadequate operating procedures like somebody was not alerted they're not trying to make money on 30 something you know three three dozen treadmills like uh, under wraps like this is somebody didn't alert a retailer somebody didn't alert a distributor or something like that Mm -hmm. which means that they were all jumbled up in there yeah you know no it was definitely a communication error um and for as much as we sometimes criticize osha in terms of what the fines are and how they're handed out I mean, there's at least seemingly a pretty clear Mm -hmm. down to the body parts and the offense as to what everything costs. There's a formula. And I think one of the issues here in Peloton could be a poster child or a case study for how to set this type of thing up. When these types of occurrences happen at these companies, 
they're just, everything's on fire. Mm-hmm. Okay. They don't know. Everything is mismanaged. Everything is out of whack. Everybody's trying to respond to something and it's not in a uniform manner. It's what is the biggest issue right now that I have to deal with? So if your Peloton, it's not working with the CPSC, it is how do I make sure I get this off the market or this taken care of, or I don't piss this retailer off, or how do I handle all these workers or whatever the dynamic is? There's just a lot of different moving parts that they need to manage. And I think what that leads to is then when a government organization goes to these companies and says, okay, you screwed up. We need to figure out how badly and what it's going to cost you. These companies have no way to give them any direction on how bad the situation really is because they don't know because they've been putting out fires for how long. And again, that's where you do need that structure to come in from an an agency like this to help say, no, these are your priorities. This is your checklist to run through. And that's how we can probably make these things much more uniform and therefore serve as a deterrent. Because right now, with it being sort of the Wild West in terms of how they're handled, these companies aren't scared of an agency coming in and determining these things because they can probably figure out ways to work around it to get whatever that amount is lowered to what they can handle. Mm -hmm. Well, it's probably, well, it's not an excuse, but at the time of this recall and as this was taking, uh, happening, you know, Peloton has fallen on some pretty hard times recently. So, you know, uh, layoffs, changes in leadership. So I understand if things are very disorganized, but at some point you need to kind of put the blinders on and attack one problem. That's not an excuse, by the way. I'm not trying to make an excuse for them at all, but you can just see it's almost like two chaotic bodies meeting and trying to figure out some way to to establish order. Mm -hmm. Actually, I wrote that into my vows. (laughs) We're just two chaotic bodies that came together and established order. I'm going to put that on my anniversary card. (laughs) Thanks, Jeff. What's your in case you missed it this week? A little bit more chaos. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really enamored by this hypersonics development, these product developments that are going on here. Mm-hmm. We ran a story um, about Russian President Vladimir Putin um, sent a frigate armed with the country's latest Zircon hypersonic missile on a transocean cruise in a show of force as tensions with the West escalate over the war in Ukraine. Russia touts that the Zircon missile can evade any Western air defense by flying at an astonishing 7,000 miles per hour. So basically these hypersonics, something we've been talking about a ton being developed, especially in China. Mm -hmm. Um, The U.S. is working on them as well. Now we're seeing the first supposedly operational hypersonic missile here. Um, Lockheed has done a lot of work here with the U.S. We've seen some tests that have been done with hypersonics. So it's interesting that Russia, who likes to jump the gun a little bit on these types of announcements, Mm -hmm. is saying they've got something. The U.S. responded saying, we're good. Mm -hmm. Don't worry. All is well. So as to the truthfulness of what Russia actually has, who knows? My takeaway from this was a little bit with with the war in Ukraine going on and the way things have been so divisive, a lot of this hypersonic technology is probably coming from China, if Mm -hmm. if we had to guess, which then leads back to a lot of the tension that has been raised between the U.S. and China over a lot of blacklisting of suppliers and not letting U.S. manufacturers work with a lot of these Chinese companies because down the road, somewhere, somehow, it could lead to a military application because so many of those Chinese companies are owned by the government. Mm -hmm. So when you kind of look at sort of how all of this stuff becomes connected, those chips that we're talking about that China is saying, hey, it's for a computer, it's for a cell phone, we don't know. Yeah, And that's why we do have to be very careful because now we're looking at missiles that if they're traveling this fast, there isn't a missile defense system set up to handle hypersonics right now. Right. Even when all that coverage we did on the B-21 Raider, that new stealth bomber, 
it's not equipped right now to handle hypersonics in -hmm. terms of either carrying them and deploying them or defending against them. It might be able to figure out they're coming, but by the time they're coming, that's too late. Mm. If they can actually do this. Okay. So again, it's just interesting how all of this leads together and how it's almost working two steps backward in the supply chain to make sure from a defensive perspective, we're ready, we're prepared, and we're doing the right thing. So I just thought it was interesting how it kind of ties everything together when you look at the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Do you think it's real? That was my no. question too. <laughs> no, I, I don't think they've got them yet, especially not deploying them off of a um, a boat. Okay. No. Okay. I, um, I share your sentiment towards the hypersonics. It's one. It's precarious the position that we're in, though, covering manufacturing and product development, where we see all of this technology from the ground level as it matures, and sometimes it's difficult where you see the excitement of its capabilities. And then once it becomes real world, how it can become quite dangerous. Yeah. It's just, you know, you've said it many times. We just, we can't have nice things, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> can't have nice things. Let's take this hypersonic technology out of the missiles, put it into our planes. So I don't need to kick the person's feet in front of me for any longer than necessary. Well, just all the supply chain issues, man. If we could get stuff <laughs> traveling at hypersonic speeds, imagine what our supply chain issues could dissolve to right uh, i could have gotten my calendar before 2023 see yeah it's all we want made it to jan 3rd i didn't you know we had nothing on the wall just bear <laughs> bear you had no idea what day it was no idea the uh kids just stood there what do we do <laughs> um let's before we get out of here let's jump into our final thoughts perhaps something uh about it being our 100th episode which i can't believe well, I can believe we made it to, but it just seems like it went so fast, Anna. It did. Um, yeah, 100 later, um, I feel like I'm really starting to get to know you guys, mm, which is good. great. <laughs> um, is it? Mm. No, it's been a lot of fun. Um, and uh, I, let's do 100 more. I'm in. No, I'm in for 100 more as well. And I'm interested <laughs> to see if over the course of the next 100, if we have as many location changes as we did for the first 100. Because you guys remember yeah. navigating. I mean, we essentially launched the podcast amidst a pandemic where at the time we didn't think we could necessarily even be within, you know, the same room as each mm-hmm. other. So logistically, it was a little difficult. It was interesting. You and I were six feet apart. Anna was in a different office. Yeah. Um, yeah. Our producers did a hell of a job in just tying that all together. They yeah. did. We went to different locations. Do you think that for the next hundred, we could settle on a time? And date for the live. <laughs> no. Sorry, no. sorry, everyone. I don't think we can because no matter when we do, we're just like, you know what? And we're going to stick to it. Next the, week. The very next week, I have an appointment or, you know, yeah. something something happens. Life happens and we're doing our best to stick to that time. We assure you. But, you know, even like uh, this week coming off a holiday. Yeah. It's uh, we wanted to make sure we had a little bit more time just to prepare for the podcast and make sure we had enough material for the podcast. Mm-hmm. So um, maybe by 200, we're really settled on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Oh, <laughs> we are not going to be settled on that. 9 a.m. No, it's not for me. That would be interesting. Yeah. I would love mm-hmm. to see you try to be ready for a 9 a.m. I would because I wouldn't sleep the previous night, <laughs> but then I would cash out right after. Oh, we'd get we'd get caffeine, David. Oh, yeah. Caffeinated Yay. David. Yeah, yeah, super manic David. <laughs> he's always fun until he's not, then he's scary. Um, <laughs> just when he goes dark. <laughs> no, um, just 
more final thoughts about it being a hundred episode. I really want to uh, send our thanks to Jeff had already said it, but to producer Alex and producer Eric, they do a great job. I want to thank everybody that has been with us growing this audience on every platform on Apple podcasts, Google, Spotify, on YouTube, on our platform, on IN.com, on manufacturing.net, across all of our other brands. We really like hearing the feedback that we've, we receive on a daily basis from this community that we've grown and just thank you all for the work that you've done. You've done great. I mean, just what you guys did this week alone, Eric and Alex, in terms of completely transforming all the equipment that we use in a, you know, essentially four day window. That was pretty cool. So, uh, Thank you, everyone, and uh, look forward to continue growing that community. Uh, Jeff, what are your final thoughts this week? So I did have a little bit of a chance, like I said earlier, to go through some of the past episode notes. Mm-hmm. Contrary to popular belief, we do not talk about Elon Musk all the time. Okay. It turns out we only talk about him half of the time. <laughs> all right. It's been and, a while, and going though, through, hasn't it not been a while? In yeah. going through the episodes, I mean, there were some where we definitely had two or three stories on Musk or SpaceX or something. Mm-hmm. But looking at store at episodes that had stuff either tied directly to Elon Musk or one of his companies, it occurred almost exactly half the time. So Objecti- every other episode. Objectively yeah. selected, though, based on data. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is yeah. just what people are are viewing and reading. Do you it's think- not counting when it just came up granularly, though. Yeah. That's true. Well, do you think that... Uh, it's been less and less because there's a little bit of Musk burnout as a result of the uh, Twitter deal. I don't think so. I I think because we don't cover Twitter because it's a social media company and he's sort of been all Twitter, no Tesla, SpaceX. Like we just haven't had as much to cover. Yeah. We'll be covering it a little bit more now that uh, Tesla's lost like what, 65% of its yeah. value. I think the other thing is we were, if I can pat ourselves on the back a little bit, we started covering Tesla sooner than a lot of mainstream outlets did. Oh, mm-hmm. true. Um, so I think we were covering that. I think we were one of the leading providers of that information as well. Now there's a lot of other sources. People are picking that up more on the AP and in every place else. So Mark Waterman says, congratulations and Thanks, great work. And I'm assuming... He loves us. Thank you, Mark. We love Thanks, you, Thanks, Mark. <laughs> you know, and looking through the notes, it was interesting to, to, to also see some of the companies. We just mentioned Peloton. Mm. Starting out two years ago, oh, yeah. Peloton was just a Wall Street darling. Oh, yeah. Everybody loved that company. They were soaring, hiring new stuff. Then all of a sudden, all the problems that they encountered, which we've talked about here, we talked about them a lot. The other one was Boeing. Mm-hmm. Boeing, when we first started out, didn't have any of the, a lot of the issues that they're experiencing now. Obviously, they're still dealing with 747 MAX issues, but- no one could have seen them sort of dropping off the way they did. And we've talked a lot about that one. Coming back around now. Lordstown. When we yeah. first started the podcast, Lordstown oh. was like this beacon of hope for U.S. automotive <laughs> manufacturing. And now look where it is. It's owned by, you know, Foxconn. So it's just interesting to see and reflecting back on the last two years. It's only been two years, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it has been a lot of stuff going on in this this industry. I love talking about um, supply chain issues like ketchup packet issues, mm. shortages. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that one. We've had lots of good debates about flying cars. And oh, I think yeah. uh, I'd probably be the most surprised to see. I was the one who actually swore talking about, um, you know, make make it at home um, Evitals or whatever we were oh, talking yeah, about. Yeah. No, it is. I mean, given our normal <laughs> discourse, let's say at a party, we do a great job in terms of like the curse counter. I don't think yeah. any of us are over five. And not, definitely yeah. not. I was major. the only one who needed to get bleeped, which yeah. that I never would have thought would have been the case. I but. mean, no, it is an exercise in restraint. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we started this podcast February 5th, 2021. And David, to your credit, you were the one who really championed this. 
Oh. Um, it was it was your concept, and I think for me, I can't speak for Anna, but for me, it was kind of like you know what, let's give it a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had a lot of products that we've put out that we thought were great that mm-hmm. just did not take for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of thought this might go the, that way as well, but I, I'm entering my 24th year of doing this writing, editing, reporting stuff. Mm-hmm. I have never experienced the level of engagement and connection to an audience mm-hmm. like yeah. we have with this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This has been an incredible experience. Um, the ability to talk about this stuff with you guys, the feedback, we get from our audience, the emails, the podcast polls, all of that stuff has been incredible. And I've never experienced anything like that before. And it makes me grateful for the collective of people you mentioned a little bit before that we have. And it's, it's Eric and Alex behind the scenes. It's Jenna Halbert doing the marketing. Mm-hmm. It's Tom Lynch, our boss and owner of the company, investing in the equipment. And also, even though they haven't been huge issues, there have been times when we did need to make decisions between sort of telling our story the way we wanted to and maybe being sensitive to advertising or sponsorship issues. And we always had that support. Right. right. We always felt that support from everybody. And it's just been an amazing experience. And I'm just very grateful for it, very thankful for it. Just appreciate everybody who listens and watches and interacts with us. Yeah. Because it's, like I said, I've never seen anything like this or experienced anything like it before. And it's it's been incredibly rewarding. Yeah. And thanks to you guys as well. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, you did get to us. No. <laughs> so yeah. that is my take on our 100th episode. That's awesome. No, uh, agreed. And actually, one thing about the level of engagement is that I do have to admit that I am not great at getting back to everybody that emails me, but I do read all of the emails and I'm very appreciative of them. Appreciative of them. Yes. Especially the support with the LED Christmas lights and letting me know that I'm not on an island. <laughs> <laughs> also, I did buy, oh, I can't remember. I th- it was either John, I think it was John that reached out and said that I need, there's a certain tool where you can like touch the light bulb and it lets you know if it's bad. I okay. did buy that. Not enough to know what it's called, but I did buy that tool. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, do we have, did we have trivia the last time? We did not. It was okay. more just getting some thoughts on what to do for the hundredth episode. Okay. Um, we don't have the new t-shirts. That was one suggestion to wear new t-shirts, but we don't oh. have those mm-hmm. ready quite yet. So yeah. working on it. But we do have a new podcast polling question. I thought this one might be kind of interesting. Looking at the last 100 episode, which, con- which country outside of the U.S. has been mentioned the most going over the history of the Ooh, podcast? I don't know this. China, Russia, Mexico, India, or Germany? Mm. So you got those list of five there. Which, which country outside of the U.S. has been mentioned the most? China, Russia, Mexico, India, or Germany? I mean, there's a couple probably leading candidates. Yeah. But um, – yeah, see what everybody thinks. I feel like this is going to be a sneaky one where I think it's one of two, and that's going to be something completely different. Is this where we talked about the country directly or like a company that's in that country? Both. Both? Both. Okay. Mm, interesting. All right. Well, you guys have anything else before we get out of here for the 100th? Nope. No? All right, to 100 more. Before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You can also subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters and make sure you get it delivered to your inbox first. Also, subscribe to us at IN Magazine on YouTube and join us live like Mark, and John, Carrie, Jesse, all of you guys that join us live on a regular basis, we really appreciate you guys. For Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells, I'm David Manti. 
This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.